0: I would ask you to turn to our text today, but I suspect that most of you know it from memory. It's Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Today I'd like to begin a new series in which we will examine the matter of creation. In the series on food, we talked a bit about creation, and earlier this year, February 2nd to be exact, Mike Greenholt spoke on creation and art and read uh, Genesis chapter 1. I thought it would be good for us to revisit the issue and to approach it from different angles. I must tell you at the beginning that I'm indebted to two recent books that have come out um, that deal with this. Uh, One is God's Good World, Reclaiming the Doctrine of Creation by Jonathan R. Wilson, who, interestingly enough, teaches at Pepperdine. Um, I've given you quotes from this book this past summer, uh, and there is one on the back table today. I hope that you have gotten it. The second book is one called The Politics of Gratitude Scale, Place, and Community in the Global Age by Mark Mitchell. As I began to write my notes for this sermon, the first question that came to mind is why study the matter of creation? Well, in truth, it is something that the church hasn't talked about much for the last two and a half centuries, it has been largely abandoned. It's been neglected, certainly compared to other doctrines that the church has tended to emphasize, let's say prophecy, for example. The result has been that the doctrine of creation has become an atrophied doctrine. It's it's like a, an arm and a cast that you don't use, and after a while you lose the ability to flex your muscles. This is what has happened. As science developed in the modern age, theologians began to think that they could not compete, particularly with Uh, the explanations that science gave with the power that it had, the control of nature. And so instead of rethinking the doctrine of creation, most Christian theologians recast the Christian life in terms of the inner life, in terms of who you are as a Christian in your heart or of salvation history. As a result, the Christian faith withdrew from the field of the sciences and located Christian teaching either in the heart or in a special strand of history. So it is during this time that we begin to talk about church history as opposed to just history in general. Simply put, with the rise of sciences, theology largely abandoned the doctrine of creation and left the field to the sciences, left it to those who are not believers. But as I hope that we will see in this series... A mature, healthy understanding of creation is essential to growth in Christian discipleship and witness to the gospel. I would dare say that we don't think in those terms. Creation and Christian discipleship, creation and the gospel witness, only if it's winning a debate about how we got here, about origins. One of the problems is we tend to see creation as the setting, as... The setting in which redemption takes place. So, God made the world, He puts us in the world, we get saved, and then we're out of here. You know, we go to heaven to be with Him forever. Something I hope that we see in this series is that creation and redemption go together. They are not two separate things, that if we are going to have a healthy view of redemption, we must have a healthy view of creation and vice versa. Something else I hope that we see, and that is as we go through this issue of creation, that we will be thoroughly and thoughtfully Trinitarian. That the doctrine of the Trinity is in fact the basic grammar for us to understand what it means to be a Christian what it means to be redeemed, but more than that, what it means in terms of creation. I think if I were to say to you the Trinity is important for us to understand salvation and and redemption, you would say absolutely. That the Father sent the Son, the Son died, He's now returned to the Father, He sent the Spirit, they both sent the Spirit who indwells us. So yes, redemption is Trinitarian. I don't know that we think that way necessarily with regard to creation. If we fail to be Trinitarian in our thinking of creation, we will fall into all kinds of errors. We need to understand two things. That the doctrine of creation is not primarily about creation or the nature of creation. It is about the God who creates. The God who creates cannot be known apart from the God who redeems. So again, creation and redemption must be seen together. And the second thing is, when we talk about the doctrine of creation, oftentimes we get stuck in the past, that this is how the world came to be, when in fact what we should be talking about is what is the purpose of the world, what is the end, if you wish, the telos of the world, what is, why is it here? If this is true, then why has the doctrine of creation been neglected? I mentioned the rise of science in the modern world that has caused many to take a defensive position. I think there may be more to it. You see, human beings are creatures. We might ask, what does that mean? And better yet, what does it matter? If we accept that we are creatures, then we are part of creation, and creation did not create itself. Thus, we owe our existence, our very being, To something or someone other than ourselves. In the Christian faith, we would say this is God who is the Creator. And for the most part, for us, this is not a problem. Until we begin to consider some of what it means to be a creature. Because we are creatures, we have bodies. We are embodied. Which means that, first of all, we are limited. We occupy, we inhabit, we live in a particular place. And our interest, our awareness, our concerns flow out from that place. I cannot be in two places at one time. To put this in harsher terms, we are confined. And we are limited by that confinement. We also find that we are confined by time. And it isn't just that we are mortal. There is that. We will all die one day. But it is that we are confined to a particular moment in time. I might imagine a future moment. I may remember a past moment. But I am confined to live in this moment right now. And now that moment is gone. And so I am in another moment. I am, if you wish, confined And that's not something we'd like to think. Uh, We'd like to think of ourselves as being much more free than that. Secondly, we are imperfect. And we can articulate this in different ways. We are imperfect because we are finite, because we are not self-sufficient, because we are not omniscient. Yes, we are imperfect due to our sinfulness, but if we drop the language of sin we would still have to acknowledge that we are imperfect. We are finite. We are limited. We don't know everything. So we don't always know what is the right thing to do. And so we need laws. We need a political structure to enforce the laws for those who refuse to obey the laws. We're also contingent. That means we are dependent. We did not plan our own births. We are dependent on our parents to feed us and clothe us. We have a need for companionship as well as economic relationships and a large number of other cooperative uh, endeavors. A world of dependency or contingency is a world of mystery. Let's stop a minute. There's a difference between puzzle and mystery. Um, As human beings, I think we are naturally drawn to puzzles. When the pieces aren't in the the way that they should be. There's something that's somewhat uneasy about us that we have this need to put things together as they should be, to put them in the right order. We could say that the disorder bothers us and we gain a sense of satisfaction when uh, at the end we have, in fact, put the puzzle together. And this is not a bad thing. In fact, this has driven much of what has happened in the modern age. But a mystery is something that is different. A mystery is a limit beyond which A contingent being, that's me, that's you, cannot go. Apart from the grace of God and the revelation of God, there are certain things I cannot know. To believe in mystery is to hold that there are truths I can't fully grasp or comprehend, even though I believe that they in fact exist. To be content with mystery is to be content with being a creature. To say... I am limited, I am finite, and I am imperfect. But we don't like limits. We chafe against limits. It's always been a human trait. And it's become especially acute in the modern age. We can expect, as we've seen in Ben's sermon and what I have spoken of in the past in Second Timothy, that that which is in the culture will ultimately infect us. And that chafing against limitations It's very much present in our culture, and we find it coming into the church as well. I'm reminded of a colleague of mine um, at UCLA who I saw one day, and I said, How are you doing? She said, I'm fine. I just need to clone myself. Um, I, I, I have so many things to do, I can't get them all done. That's a real sign that, yes, we are limited. There's only one of me. There can't be two or three of me. And I'm only here at this moment right now. I'm not somewhere else and we don't we're not content with that because we don't like the business of being a creature which then affects our view of creation or a theology of creation i want you to think of for a moment changing gears a bit if people are missing an essential ingredient in their diet we will see deficiencies appearing up in their physical body so if you have an iron deficiency you will have anemia. If you have a vitamin C deficiency, you may end up with scurvy. Okay? Now, the results of these deficiencies may not be, in fact, immediately evident. In fact, it may take a blood test for the doctor to say to you, oh, you're anemic, by the way. You need to take some iron. You're like, well, yeah, I get tired sometimes, but I didn't think I was anemic. It doesn't show up right away, but it is, in fact, there. I think the same can be said for the church. That when the church turns away or ignores the truth of creation, there will be certain deficiencies, certain diseases, if you wish, that will show up in the church. So let's ask ourselves, what are the diseases, what are the results in the church that have come about because our theology of creation has been neglected? Let me... me, suggest some to you. The first is Gnosticism. This is an ancient heresy, an ancient way of thinking that the Church, in fact, has identified as a heresy. It's an ancient school of thought that seemed, we're not sure, but in the second century began to have a significant presence among those who called themselves Christians, the people of God. They, in fact, created their own Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas. In this way of thinking, the world is divided into good and evil. The spiritual is good, and the material is evil. So everything you can see is, in fact, evil. In this way of thinking, the world, the material world, did not fall because of Adam and Eve's sin. It was evil from the very beginning. And so, in some schools of thought and Gnosticism, God didn't create the world. Another God did, an evil God. And so what the good God is trying to do is to redeem us out of this evil world. So redemption is only for the soul, if you wish, or the spirit, and not for the material or the physical. I think if you read Genesis chapter 1, you see that Gnosticism simply is not possible. A second deficiency, or a second disease, if you wish, is disembodiment. This is, I think, sort of a low-grade infection. This isn't full-blown Gnosticism. We would never say creation, bad, spirit, good. I mean, we, we wouldn't talk in those terms. But in fact, I think we have less than a healthy view of God's creation. One of the first areas of weakness, I think, has to do with the human body. Now, I grew up in a tradition that really put a lot of emphasis on the body, because most of the rules they had had to do with the body, about what you wore, your hair length, things like that. But there was actually no theology or little theology to explain these rules, to make sense of them. It's simply, this is the way Christians are. Um, Some would say your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Zib read this to us last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But still, there was no doctrine of the body, if you wish. The rules were not about my body and its worth as a creation of God, but rather that it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we need more. We need to have a doctrine, a theology of creation. The quote that I gave out, you may have gotten it, it's on the back table. Jonathan Wilson points out that without, without a theology of the body, we are weakened and vulnerable to anyone who has a corrupt theology of the body. Those who want to sell us all manner of things to improve our bodies are teaching us a theology of the body. Those who tell us our bodies are beyond improvement are teaching a theology of the body. Those who tell us that extending our lives is a priority for personal and social planning have a theology of the body. Those who ask us to use our bodies to serve the corporation, the state, or the cause of democracy have a theology of the body. Sadly, the Church seems to lack a theology of the body. And in order to have a robust theology of the body, we must, in fact, Recapture the doctrine of creation. God made our bodies and He declared them good. It is ironic, but that the church's neglect to develop a theology of the body has not led to a neglect of the body, but it's led to almost an obsession, an obsessive approach or concern for them the whole issue of body image that we find in the culture has come into the church as well. This may have been before some of you were born, but back in the 1980s, there was a Christian exercise program that was available on VHS. And the motto of this Christian exercise program was He must increase, but I must decrease. Um... I hardly think that's what John the Baptist had in mind when he spoke those words. The absence of a theology of the body indicates an area of disease in the church. It results from the neglect of the doctrine of creation and it cries out for nourishment. We must in fact recapture the doctrine of creation. A third disease, if you wish, that results from this is a truncated view of salvation. Do we need to be saved? Absolutely. Is God and Christ our only hope for salvation? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But then we need to ask, what is salvation? The Gnostics saw salvation as the release of the spirits, the good spirits from the evil bodies. And this belief is closer than many of us would care to admit to how salvation is presented today even in evangelical circles. I would argue that many Christians today are actually functionally Gnostic, even though they do not recognize it. A parenthesis here, a sidebar, if you wish. The word flesh, as it is used in the epistles and English translations, doesn't help us in this regard. One of the things that has allowed a faulty view of the body to emerge is be- these translations. So, um, let me read to you from Romans chapter 8. This is Romans 8, 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Well, if you read this, it would seem that Paul is almost Gnostic. That Paul is saying, flesh, bad, spirit, good. But the fact is, Paul uses the word sarx in Greek, and it does not refer to the physical body. Later on, by the way, in Romans chapter 12, 1, that familiar verse, therefore I urge you bodies in in view of God, I'm sorry, I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. If Paul was talking about the body in Romans 8, that's the word he would have used. But instead, he uses the word that is translated in uh, many translations as flesh. Uh, Some have translated as the sinful nature, which I think is much more accurate. Sarks does not refer to the physical body. It refers to the power of, That stands against God's work for the flourishing of creation. Sarx is anti-God. It is anti-human. It distorts our body image. It seduces us with counterfeit pleasures. It promises us life and then it crushes us to death. It is the sinful nature. So Paul was not a Gnostic. He wasn't saying the bodies are bad. You know, you somehow the body, just forget about the body, just think about saving your soul. He was, in fact, talking about that, that way of thinking, that sinful nature that drives so much of what we do. When we speak of being saved, it is proper to say that we are saved from sin, from death, from Satan, and that we are saved from sarks. We should not equate any of those with creation. Sin, death, Satan, and Sarks corrupt creation, okay? But they are not essential characteristics of creation. God did not make creation with sarks or with sin or death, or Satan for that matter. Creation is something quite indifferent. God in Christ is redeeming our bodies back from sin, death, Satan and Sarks. Salvation is from these things, but it is also for life. And the form of life that God intends for us is creation. So to have a real doctrine of cre- of salvation, we must have a doctrine of creation and vice versa. If we have a weak view of creation, a weak doctrine of creation, I will argue that we will have a misshapen, we might think it's quite robust, but a really weak View of salvation. If you consider the church today, and this is, I'm talking very, very broadly, we find two approaches when it comes to the matter of salvation. One is the care for creation and social justice, apart from a biblical view of redemption, the other is evangelization, but apart from any concern of creation and social justice. I would argue that both the liberal and the conservative in fact ignore they neglect the doctrine of creation. When people are oppressed, when people are marginalized, when they are impoverished, when they are treated unjustly, creation is not right. But we should not imagine that we can have justice without a view of God in mind. That the idea that somehow apart from God we can achieve justice apart from him at the end of time making all things right, then we've really missed something. We need to recognize that the good news is the good news to all creation. There should not be a division between social justice, evangelization. These, in fact, should be proclamation of God's good news. And it should lead us to care for creation. Wilson writes this, one of the greater tragedies of theology's neglect of creation has been the church's complicity in the destruction of the natural world and thus also of conditions that contribute to the flourishing of life. An even greater tragedy, let's use the church's language, an even greater sin has been the voices in the church that have resisted and mocked the passion for life that leads us to care for creation. I must move on, there's so much more I could say about this, but I would have you consider that in the practice of communion, we affirm both the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption. We may think that it is only redemption, that Jesus died for us. We're remembering that he gave his life, that we may have life. But in fact, we are eating and drinking the stuff of creation, that which God brought into being. We should recognize these truths. God came in the flesh into this world, the Incarnation. Our salvation is material. It is located in the redemption of creation. And the Word who is Creator and who became flesh, the Word who is the life of the world, is in fact our life. By the way, if you get a chance, go back and read Romans 8 again. And Paul there talks about creation groaning, waiting for redemption. There is creation and redemption in the same verse. Things that we tend to oftentimes separate. If we begin to grasp what it means to be a creature and to be a part of creation, if we come to recognize that we are creatures who are contingent and dependent, if we are creatures who owe debts to others, both living and dead, then we should recognize that at least one of our dispositions should be that of gratitude. Yet we tend to be a rather ungrateful lot. This comes from Mark Mitchell. We need to recognize that gratitude is a disposition toward the world that reminds us that we are not alone, we are not solitary creatures, that we somehow imagining that we owe nothing to anyone. Gratitude points to our dependence and our contingency. When our thoughts are characterized by gratitude, we are looking to others. We are not thinking primarily of ourselves. Gratitude breaks us out of the prison of self-satisfaction and self-concern that is a constant temptation. But see, gratitude isn't simply a disposition. It is, in fact, a reaction. It is the result of goodness. I can't simply say, I'm grateful. Question is, grateful for what? What has someone done for me that I, in fact, have a disposition of gratitude? I can be friendly, and I can be generous, and it not be reciprocated. I mean, I initiate that I can be friendly. It doesn't matter if people are friendly back. I can be generous to others. It doesn't matter what they say. But I can only be grateful in response to that which has been done to me or for me. It requires the action of another before I can, in fact, become grateful. So this raises several questions. Is gratitude a moral duty? Am I morally bound to be grateful? Well, let's put it negatively. If I am ungrateful, is this a moral failure on my part? I find it interesting that in the modern world, and particularly as we drift into the postmodern world, gratitude is something that people do not like. I find it interesting that Nietzsche regret, regarded gratitude as a terrible burden. Nietzsche hated gratitude. He wrote The man who gives a great gift encounters no gratitude, for the recipient simply by accepting it has already too much of a burden. If I have given you a gift, I haven't simply given you a gift, I've put a burden on you because now you have to be grateful to me for having given you something. And if, as Nietzsche suggests, that the will to power is what drives us as human beings, then indeed gratitude would be a burden. I, I don't want to owe you gratitude. I you know, Keep your stinking gift. I, you know, don't give me something that is going to make me inferior to you that is going to put me in a weaker position and put you in a stronger position. After all, I have the will to power, and therefore, I do not wish to be grateful. Okay, well, is gratitude a moral virtue? If it's a duty, is it a virtue? Again, I find it interesting that Aristotle spoke of the virtue of generosity, but not of gratitude. To Aristotle, the most virtuous man was, in fact, the most self-sufficient man. And while he agreed that we should be grateful in response to someone's generosity, when you are grateful, someone has given you something, it is a signal, it is a sign that you are weak and you are in need. But wait a minute. If, in fact, we are creatures and we are contingent as well as dependent Perhaps gratitude is not a sign of weakness, as Aristotle would suggest. But it, it recognizes and it signifies that we are creatures and that we share creation with others. Another question that comes up is, to whom do I owe gratitude? This could be a sermon in itself, but I think we should touch on it. Let me suggest some things to you. Some are obvious, some perhaps less so, just for you to consider. First of all, we owe God gratitude. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, in everything give thanks. It's hard to imagine giving thanks in everything unless the object of that thanks was God. If God is the author of life, if he is the source of all goodness, he is giving goodness to us, then our disposition should be one of gratitude. Surely, continual thanks are in order simply because we possess life and we enjoy breath. His faithfulness continues through all generations. In the Anglican uh, version of this, I remember going to an Anglican school. We had chapel four days a week. It said, Know that the Lord is God, it is He who made us, and not we ourselves. We are creatures, we did not make ourselves. And therefore, we enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We give thanks to him and praise his name. It suggests that we owe gratitude to our parents. That while God is the ultimate source of life, we owe our lives to our parents. Which leads, I think, to another object of our gratitude that we may not think of. We owe gratitude to our ancestors. If we are to be grateful to our parents, we should remember that they had parents who had parents and so on. Going back to people whose names we do not even know, we are part of a long line of fathers and mothers who have passed down to us not only physical traits, but practices and stories, ways of living and dying. In short, they have contributed to us the culture we inhabit and the world they have given us a world that is specifically human. I think once we recognize this, we will realize. That our debt is beyond comprehension, let alone beyond repaying. I would suggest that we also owe gratitude to the state. Edmund Burke wrote that the state is a gift given to us for our benefit. It is the product of generations of accumulation and modifications. Somehow, and particularly in this generation, it seems that people think that this is the way it's always been. That somehow, yeah, it's always been this way. Uh, CNN is doing a series now on the 1960s. I was telling you about this the other night, and I was channel surfing, and I caught a bit of it. And it was talking about when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and then Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And these sage voices on television, Eric Severite and the others, said, what is happening to our country? Is it falling apart? Well, the 60s happened before most of you were born. And so that part, of it's not even part of the memory. And people imagine that the world is the way it is. It's always been this way. And the reality is, no, it hasn't. And we should give thanks. Is the state perfect? Absolutely not. Should it be changed? If it can be, yes. But there's a difference between change and destroying something. That we imagine that we can tear down it and fail to recognize that we owe a debt of gratitude for those who have built what we have, who have given their lives for what we have. That we are creatures and we are limited. I think this is one of the big differences uh, between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. In which the American Revolution, in a sense, sought to build something and the French Revolution sought to destroy something. I think we owe gratitude to the rest of creation. The beauty of creation surrounds us, in the words again of Edmund Burke, with unbought graces. I don't know if you have noticed the last couple of weeks, the sunsets here in Los Angeles have been spectacular. Just amazing. And yes, there's a part of us that's very pious, and we say, yes, we give thanks to God for that. But should we, in fact, not give thanks to creation? When we hear the birds singing, when we have the cats with us, when we see flowers, should there not be a sense of gratitude that we are part of creation with them? We are not self sufficient, we are not independent, we are creatures. I think this is a good place for us to start as we seek to construct a theology of creation and in the process not only have a stronger theology of creation but of redemption as well to understand what God's purposes are in the world rather than seeing ourselves as individuals who make choices that we want um, we will see ourselves as creatures who are not independent who are part of something much larger than ourselves. And that our disposition is to be gratitude. We have been given, and our response is to be grateful. With the Lord willing, we will continue this next week. Let's pray together. Father, even in our hymns this day, we have sung of creation, that you are the creator. And yet, in many ways, Our view of things, our view of ourselves, of our bodies, is much more informed by the culture, by the images we see, and advertising and such. And we have forgotten who we are, that we are creatures, we are limited and finite, imperfect and dependent. As a result, our view of what it means to be your children has been skewed. And even our view of you has really gone off course. By your grace, in the coming weeks, as we seek to construct a doctrine of creation, to recapture from scripture what you tell us about that which you have made, its purpose, its end, the goal you have for it. May we become better disciples of Jesus Christ. May we become better witnesses of the good news. And above all, may we become more grateful than we are. As one person put it, nothing ages so quickly as gratitude. I think so easily we forget who we are and thus we forget to be grateful. I thank you that we could meet together today, that you have gathered us to rest in your presence. I ask that you would watch over each of us in the coming week. You would give us wisdom. You would guide us and direct us. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.